This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. Hey everyone, uh, we're going to try something a little bit different this week. So you hear from myself and Sean and Lila regularly about stuff that we're dealing with and what we're excited about, but we work with a collection of really smart and great people that are all excited about different things. So this week I had the idea that we would host a little bit of an open mic afternoon, I guess, on the bike shed. Uh, it's our investment day, Friday's our investment day at ThoughtBot, uh, so I'm going to try and grab a few folks to come chat about what they're excited to be investing in. So maybe it's something you're working with too, or maybe their excitement will be contagious for us. Uh, so let's go see who I can round up. Hi, Derek. Hi, Matt Sumner. <laughs> really? It's so formal. Yeah. Hello, Mr. Matthew Sumner. <laughs> so I've grabbed Matt Sumner, developer here in our Boston office, also... Um, podcaster extraordinaire host mm. of the critically acclaimed Hunchpig podcast it's true which we'll link to in the show notes my fame embarrasses me <laughs> <laughs> so it's investment day what is it that you are excited about so i am super excited about haskell at the moment um i've only just started getting into it so i'm hoping that excitement stays sustained but we started a uh, reading group over lunch where we're reading uh, Haskell programming. But one of the things that's interesting about this book is it starts from real fundamentals. It assumes you've never programmed before. And that feels like the right way to approach it. Um, every time I've approached Haskell previously, it's been from the perspective of a Ruby developer or the perspective of a such and such developer. And I think those opinions color how you approach it. Okay. Um, so the cool thing it starts with is Lambda Calculus, which I don't know. Oh, if yeah. Yeah. I was in, when I was in college, we had a class that was about, it was in, the class was like, we did exercises in scheme and it was all about the Lambda Calculus and it just like, I remember being like, I'm never going to use this. And then now here I am years later being like, I wish I kind of paid attention to that. Right. Why, why is it always prefixed with the? Hmm. I've always just said Lambda Calculus. Like we don't say the math. You're right. Well, you might say, like, the math is right. The <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, the Lambda Calculus. Yes. Um, I've ne I, so, I didn't do a CS degree, so I've never... Um, although I did do a physics one, so I feel like I should have touched on Lambda Calculus. All right. Calculus. So, what is, what is the Lambda Calculus besides the thing that bored me to death in college? <sighs> so, the Lambda Calculus, it's a type of calculus that doesn't use any numbers. So, okay. it basically only uses functions which is interesting from a programming perspective because programs are made up of functions, essentially, and sort of orders of operation and that kind of thing. And the proofs that you get from the Lambda calculus are just as applicable in uh, programming as they are in sort of everyday math. And so maybe I'm jumping ahead and maybe this isn't true, but that would be, those would be pure functions, right? Like right, yes. Same input, always the same output. Exactly. Um, no state, no mutation. Right. Any state you would have to pass in, right, to the function. So why are you? What what is it? Why are you excited about Haskell? What got you looking into? Ah, uh, so one of the things Haskell promises, or at least people who have been doing a lot of Haskell keep promising me, 
is that like it's very difficult to forget about anything. Like it does force you to think about every single code path. And one of the things I find as a Ruby developer is that I sometimes forget to account for um, oh, what if this thing is going to be a nil? You know, like, yeah, like maybe you're throwing together a quick controller and you're like, uh, okay, it's a create action. You're like, okay, save, and you're like, okay, great, it worked. And then you forget to handle the case where it doesn't, where it fails. Exactly. And then it blows up on you. You're like, oh, I forgot to put the conditional in here that says else re-render the form or right. whatever. And right. there's always a lot more code paths than I think there are when I'm first designing something. And so having like a language that actually forces you to take that into account seems valuable. Seems like a weird thing to get excited about, but <laughs> I, well, I've been bitten so many times. That... Right. The episode that Sean and I did last, which was episode 48, we'll put a link in the show notes, we talked about software quality. And one of the things that came up was we talked about like strong type systems that could help like potentially being a solution to some of our software quality problems. Right. And we've talked about that here internally a lot as well. And I think Haskell has gone through swings of popularity at ThoughtBot as well. It's kind of on its way back up because you, you and Joe has kind of started this, having this idea of like, let's do another Haskell book club. Because we did, I did the first Haskell book club we did, which was um, Learn You a Haskell. Right. Have you read that? I tried. Okay. And it didn't go well. Really? I think, again, because it was approaching it from the attitude that you've programmed before. And I think there were a lot of su- assumptions I made about the way th- concepts work because I understand those concepts in Ruby. And then you see similar words and similar vocabulary, but they actually have different meanings. Mm-hmm. And so approaching it from like really basic fundamentals has felt a lot better. That's interesting. I really, I, I enjoyed the Learn You a Haskell book and I kept up with it in the beginning and then things got serious. <laughs> right. And I kind of, that's when I kind of, I was like, at first I was like, this is so much fun. This is great. And then we got into like monoids and monads and I was like an applicative and I was like, I don't know. I, I kind of, I kind of lost the thread a little bit and missed a couple of the discussions that we had right. on Fridays and then, you know, basically checked out. <laughs> I mean, it does, it does seem like they're sort of building, uh, this is the, the promise is that you can have uh, very small functions or concepts and build on top of that. Right. to make something fantastic. Yeah. And I have no idea what a monad is or a monoid or any of those things. But there's apparently a curse that when you find out, you lose the ability to describe it. <laughs> I'll believe that because people I ask, I'm like, I don't, what? I don't. And like, I go through periods of like not having any idea what a monad is. And then I understand what a monad is. And then I forget what a monad is. <laughs> um, and at no point am I able to explain it to anybody else what I think a monad is. Right. So yeah, that seems, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm hoping I'll find out and I'll try and explain it. <laughs> okay. We'll have you back on to explain exactly what a monad is. Right. <laughs> Okay, so I just grabbed Cole Townsend. He's a designer here in our Boston office. Uh, Cole, what are you excited about? Uh, so right now I'm pretty excited about Velocity.js and the Buffalo Bills. Luckily, Velocity.js performs a lot more consistently and better than the Buffalo Bills do. <laughs> uh, so it's a JavaScript library used to animate elements on web pages. So it performs way faster than jQuery, um, and it's also even better than CSS. So it's often used to replace kind of CSS animations, I'd say across like interfaces and stuff like that. And, you know, if you only have a couple animations, it might be worth using just CSS. But for more extensive animating, Velocity.js is a lot more performant. Uh, the library is pretty tiny and you don't need jQuery to use it. You can just use the uh, document select by ID or whatever. 
yeah, so it performs at like 60 FPS. It was supported by Stripe, made it into their like support program where they got a bunch of money to uh, work on it. It was made by Julian Shapiro. So he's been supporting that. It's now in 1.0. Um, and usually I use that. I actually use it for prototyping, um, just getting like little animations together, even recording stuff uh, that I post on Dribble. Yeah, so it's been really fun to use and it's really accessible. So what do you mean by recording stuff you put on Dribble? So you'll animate some so you'll design something then animate it and record that as like a, right. a something you post on Dribble. Yeah, so instead of animating it in like Frame or JS, which is a prototyping program or using plain old CSS or oh god, maybe Photoshop, um, I'll actually record it. I'll use I'll, I'll just like use LiceCap or ScreenFlick and record it and just like use CodePen or something like that. Like import import the velocity.js library via CodePen. Uh, make a little animation, record it in like a 400 by 300, and then post it to Dribble. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. The the performance thing is interesting. I think I worked with Brenda, our designer in New York City, sure. on a project, and we did some CSS animating, or she did some CSS animating for a homepage of this client we were working on, and it worked great in most browsers. And then it right. like crawled on some of them, and it was just like, oh, this CSS animation stuff isn't quite ready yet right. where we want it to be. So we ended up having to rewrite that in javascript but it wasn't wasn't we didn't use like an animation library for it we could actually just do some image swapping kind of stuff but oh cool so do you have much call for animations on the pro on your client projects that we're working on uh more recently i've been using it less just because it, it kind of comes in more in the the polish and production area um i've been doing a lot of product design sprints lately just so so that really hasn't come in too much um i used it a little bit with a project earlier uh just for a really small interaction. I usually use them for use it for like one-off things. I'll open up a code pen, pull in velocity, and just like illustrate some sort of you. Know, I want this like sort of timing function because it has spring timing, which is awesome. What is um, what spring timing? So spring timing uses like basic kind of like basic physics. It's friction and uh, dampening and that sort of thing. I don't actually know what those things mean, <laughs> but it has to do with how elastic something looks when it bounces. Okay. So I use that. I've used that for like animating in pages. I use it on my personal site um, for animating in like elements, and it has a really cool callback. Um, you can set a drag factor, so when you're animating in say a l- bunch of list items, they'll actually delay a little bit. There's a little bit of a stagger, and then the timing function. So like say you're using um, the spring timing, that will actually change a little bit by like a, fra- a small fraction for each consecutive element. Cool. Yeah. And you said you mentioned like you've used it for some little touches here and there and like that's kind of my understanding of like the best use case for animation is like you don't want to go crazy, right? Sure. But so like you just sprinkle things in. <laughs> yeah, for the most affordances, part. Affordances basically. Sp- sprinkle things in here or there. Um I think it's overkill to use like say on a button unless you want to do some like really weird flippy stuff with it or like 3D transitions it's kind of nice, but uh I've used it for like animating elements in on a landing page. Um, so just like in the header area, I've used it to trigger in like a list of blog posts or like a bunch of you know cards of some sort of content. Right. Um, so it's nice for that. I think you know the key is just like using it sparingly. Yeah, and I really I do like it. Like you mentioned the landing page examples. Like when I'm scrolling around a landing page and like all right, like click on something and there's like it's just a little like polish right. to the whole experience. Yeah, just a like little touch is kind of nice. And right. I think you know Stripe is really done a great job of that on all of their pages um their dashboard for iphone page is amazing um i don't think that actually uses velocity they made their own they have their own library now um but it has like just the right amount of animation so why wouldn't i just use the jquery animate so the jquery animate has a lot of like uh, 
I guess they show an example on the Velocity.js homepage, and it's a lot more, it has a lot more of like a stagger to it. Like it has jitters um, okay. when you animate things. And it's probably because it's maybe at like 20 or 30 FPS. So if you do, if you move something from left to right, say 500 pixels, if you watch the jQuery one and you watch the Velocity.js one, it's, it's very clear that the Velocity.js one is better. The Velocity.js one is completely smooth. There seems to be no jump. Whereas the jQuery one every so often like will jump a few pixels. And then the longer the animation is, the worse it performs. Oh, right. Yeah, that makes sense. And you also mentioned um, it doesn't require jQuery. So obviously, if your site is not otherwise using jQuery, there's no need to go and grab all of jQuery so you can get jQuery Animate. Or even just like doing a custom jQuery Animate download like when there's this perfectly good, right. even better animation library that you should be using. Yeah, they actually, Julian suggests on in the docs or like in the intro on his site for Velocity.js that you should actually just, if you really need jQuery, say for the... Um, dom selector like the dollar sign um function that you can get a custom build of jquery and kind of save on the space right. um that you'd otherwise lose from adding in velocity which i think is only like 27 you know kilobytes or something like that so it's not that big um especially in like giant web apps where you could be writing tons of like your the amount of animations you write might be more than the actual library right um yeah so you can create a custom build of jquery and save on the space or you can not use it at all and you just use like the basic built-in javascript selectors right i do feel like jquery has kind of eaten the world <laughs> like you can do so much with it that everybody's just like i just need jquery and then i'll figure out what i'm going to use it for later right? right but you would never do that with any other library you wouldn't be like i'm just going to grab velocity we'll figure out what we're going to do with it later Right, you'd be like, oh, I need I need animation. What is the best tool for this animation job? And where I feel like exactly. jQuery has reached a point where we're just like, well, I'm going to need to do some JavaScripty things. I'm going to need to select some elements. I'm going to need some events. Right. Uh, I'll just throw on I'll throw jQuery on there. And I'm not saying like you shouldn't use jQuery, but being more considerate of the parts of it you're using and whether or not you need the whole thing or whether there's a better sure. tool for the specific job you need to do, right. like Velocity in this case. Exactly. And it's not like, oh, you're you're building. Say you're building a site. You're not going to immediately say. Okay, let's just like pull in Bootstrap. We need that now. I think that used to be the case with Bootstrap, where it's like, all right, we're just going to use Bootstrap. We can figure out styles and like the rest of that stuff later because we know we need this framework. And I think now more and more people are just like, all right, let's start with the least amount of styles we can have. Um, and I think that's less less the case in terms of jQuery. Um, and I think with with React and with Ember and how um, powerful those have gotten and how widely used those have, those have been, people will be using jQuery less. I look forward to this day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Nothing wrong with jQuery, really. I mean, it's great. It, it solves so many problems. I mean, it still solves a lot of problems. A lot of people like to dismiss, like, oh, you don't need that anymore. You can just do this. But jQuery still solves a lot of problems. And all of these libraries still solve many problems that you can't just use native JavaScript for. And it's still. Right. I just feel bad seeing it used just for, like, the dollar sign selector. Right. Yeah. It's like, poor jQuery. Like, <laughs> we don't really need the rest of you. We just need this. <laughs> and you also mentioned the Buffalo Bills. I'm a, I'm a large Bills fan. Um, every year we say this is the year. Yeah. Uh, this has been the most exciting they've been. Um, really? In Even the though they had, didn't they have a worse record this year? Than they oh, had we probably before? had a worse record this year for sure. Right. But, but you had an entertaining this, coach. Yeah, we had an entertaining coach. The team's been entertaining. Everyone's really fired up for next year. You still don't have a quarterback. We Oh, oh we definitely do. <laughs> Tyrod Taylor? I love Tyrod Taylor. <laughs> he, is the, he is the real deal. He is the real deal. Okay. We also had the best running team in the league, which is pretty good. Yeah, uh, Carlos Williams and uh, what's his name there? The guy they got from Philly? 
oh, I can't even remember his name. We had <laughs> we had so many. McCoy. Of our oh yeah, that's yeah. right. So both Shady. of those guys. Yep. Yeah, they all got hurt though at the end. Yeah, so, I know. That's what I was gonna say. So, Tyra yeah, was putting the team on his back. A little surprising the defense. A little, a little surprising the defense wasn't better with Rex Ryan as the coach. Yeah, it's so true. They looked really bad. But you know, at the end of the day, both Bills and Pats fans are saying there's always next year. <laughs> oh, this year maybe. But the yeah, difference is we know year. we're going to be there next year. Whereas we know we <laughs> haven't made the playoffs in 17 years. <laughs> oh, no. Has it been 17 years? It is a record-setting playoff drought <laughs> across, like, the three main, the three big sports. That's awful. I'm sorry. Yeah. Maybe maybe next year? Maybe next year. We have to play the Patriots twice every year. That's tough. Yeah, it's a tough conference, seeing yeah. as the Pats are so dominant and the rest of the teams are not that good. Yeah. Like I said, it's it's kind of like uh, it took some of the sting out of the Patriots' loss last week to say, like, well, we're still reasonably sure we're going to get a good shot at it again next year. Yeah, you'll still make the playoffs next year. You'll still win the conference. <laughs> Maybe. One of these years that won't be true, though, and we'll, we'll see. It'll be painful to watch the Buffalo Bills Go win, to the the Super Bowl. Win, win, the, win the division. That'd be tough. Yeah, I can't right. wait to see the Bills win the division. I wonder if it'll happen in my lifetime. <laughs> Just winning the division. Yeah, just that's to win all the you division. want. That's all I want. Okay, all, that's all I want for Christmas next year. <laughs> Hi, Joel. Hey, Derek. So I'm joined by Joel Kenville. Is that how you yes. say your last name? Joel uh, Kenville. Joel Kenville, head coach of the Chicago Blackhawks. Side project. Okay. <laughs> so what are you excited about these days? What have you been uh, investing? I've in? been really excited about the Elm language. Elm is something that compiles to JavaScript. Yes, that's, that's correct. Okay. It's a statically compiled language, kind of inspired by Haskell, but that's actually user friendly. And what are you it, saying about Haskell? That's what Matt just talked to us a little bit about <laughs> a little bit ago. Haskell has a reputation for kind of being built by academics for academics and having a very high uh, learning curve. Okay. Elm has tried very hard to smooth out that learning curve. Right. So what's it? Uh, what do you like about it? What does what does it got for features? I mean, I assume you said you compared it to Haskell, so we're talking about strong types. Yes, so pure it's got functions. the. It's a purely functional uh, reactive language, which means that obviously you're dealing with immutable data. You're dealing with. Uh, it's also statically typed, so you've got the strong type system similar to Haskell. You're dealing with pure functions, so no side effects. You're dealing with a reactive model. So when you have events that happen in the world, you react to them and do something. Your state is kind of stored in a single place, and you're just generating new values of that state every time. Cool. What are your favorite features of it? I have to say the compiler is incredibly friendly. It'll catch things like typos very easily. It will catch things like you write a function that's not actually doing what you think it does. So if it's returning an incorrect type, it will tell you very nicely. One thing that's kind of blown my mind about the type system is the fact that it automatically enforces semantic versioning on your packages because it more or less can detect if you've introduced any breaking changes into your API. Oh, that's really interesting. So unless, like, you know, you could theoretically, like, I don't know, if you had an addition function, right, you could screw up addition to the point where the types don't change. But you're probably not going to do that. Yes. Um, what you're going to do is instead introduce some path where nil can also be returned or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And at that point, you've introduced a breaking change, right. and the compiler is smart enough to auto-upgrade your uh, – when you're releasing the package, it'll auto-upgrade the – what is that, a minor version? 
or major version. If it's a breaking change, it's a major version. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, the little I've heard about Elm, I haven't used it yet, but everybody raves about the error messages, which I've been putting a lot of effort into myself on all the projects I use. Like, if I use a project and get a deprecation warning from it, for instance, and it doesn't tell me, like, where the deprecation was triggered, like, that drives me nuts. Or if it doesn't tell me what I should do instead, like, you probably knew when you wrote the deprecation message what I should be doing instead, right? So, what I've seen of Elm. Like when you get an error for types, it tells you like, I got this type, I expected this type. Did you mean this? Like, or like when you do have a syntax error, it's like, did you try to, are you meet, did you mean, mean to do this other thing or whatever, right? So it's very helpful. And oftentimes it'll even have a link to documentation. Perfect. You're like, oh, you might want to read more at this URL, which as a beginner, I found quite helpful. Yeah, definitely. I don't know why I don't do that in any of my own deprecation messages. I think because I'm nervous about where I would put that content. Right, and to have it stay forever available. <laughs> Putting it in GitHub could easily be deleted or we could move off GitHub or whatever. But you know, Elmlang has elm-lang.org so they can stick things there. Also because of the compiler, uh, you don't get runtime errors in your app, which is a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, no more undefined method for null or... <laughs> uh, undefined is not a function. Yes, undefined is not a function. Those errors that are so tricky to trigger in JavaScript sometimes you're, when you have to set up just the perfect set of circumstances, but then they're just impossible to track down as well. Whereas the compiler will ensure that none of those can happen at compile time. Yeah. So I don't need to wait for a user to trigger that one situation where this bug happens. Instead, I f see all the errors up front uh, before I even ship the code. The only places I've ever worked where bounties were offered internally for fixing certain hard to find bugs were java were places where the bugs were in javascript because like you get I undefined is that. not a function deep somewhere and you're like i have no idea what caused this it's some weird combination of state that caused this bug to trick trip and i can't figure out why and i can't reproduce it um but two times i've seen uh one time it was the president of the company offering a offering like a steak dinner at like the nicest steakhouse in the city um, and other times it was actual money <laughs> wow. if somebody can fix this bug. And it was all it was both JavaScript, which I found interesting. Um, and speaking of the, the stuff, I'm just like looking at the website. This thing says it has a time-traveling debugger. Yes, that thing is amazing. Explain uh, so more about this. Because Elm is purely functional and it's reactive, it's dealing with essentially the state of the app and then it just ticks it forward every time an event happens. So if you click a button, it generates a new state of the app from the old state and the event that came in. Uh, it can store all of those states, and so what you can do in the debugger is you can just move back to any of those states, change some code, and then rerun that forward to see what those actions that you did, how they affected it. This sounds amazing. <laughs> yes, it so is. So much fun. Are there use cases for which this is not a good fit? Honestly, I'm not sure. I haven't right. pushed its boundaries enough to where it's really breaking or I've not tried anything that I've found that's too big or too small for it yet. What's the story about interopping with like other JavaScript libraries? Can it do that? Yes, it can interop with uh, JavaScript libraries. Because Elm is very kind of ideologically pure, it sets those boundaries very clearly but it does allow interopping with JavaScript just like it would with any other source of data that it might have. So 
it might inter interop with a WebSocket in a similar way that it would with values from JavaScript. It's just some external source sending it data. So, so far, have you just been doing, like, working with us on Fridays and investment times? Uh, I've been doing some things on my own as well. The kind of easiest thing to get up and running with Elm is actually uh, web games built with Canvas, just because they ship a Canvas library with the standard library. Uh, but they also handle HTML quite well. They use a diffing algorithm very similar to what React does uh, to get those really fast partial page rewrites. Wow. So do you think, are you confident enough in this to say, like, I would love to find a project to, like... I would love to find a project. Okay. I am super excited about this. So do you think, like, could we use this in Rails and use, like, a transpiler for Elm instead of using a transpiler for CoffeeScript or whatever? Uh, I think it would be more than just a few dynamic things. It would be in place of using something like React or Angular oh, okay. uh, or even Ember. So you wouldn't just use this as like a replacement for CoffeeScript? No, it's a whole different way of thinking and programming. Right. Uh, so one thing that people often ask me is, what about source maps? Do you ever have to debug the JavaScript that's generated? And I never look at it because no runtime errors. Right. And you have that fancy time-traveling debugger. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the, the bugs that you would catch with a time-traveling debugger are actual logic bugs. So they're not, oh, your interfaces didn't match up on various functions. Right. It's the code that you wrote is successfully working, but the things that are doing are not quite the things you wanted it to do. Right. Going back to our addition example, you got a 4 instead of a, when you expected a 5. Yes, right? that's so correct. Something, something like that. So the types all match up, the interfaces all match up, but you just had a, a logic bug. Thank you. Yes. Cool. So you're getting a wrong result, but not a broken program. Okay. It's definitely, I've noticed like you, I think, were the first person around the Boston office to be kind of like speaking about Elm a lot. And then today at Stand Up, on Fridays at Stand Up, we go around and we talk about like what it is we're going to be spending our investment time on. And today, I think like four or five people were like, I'm going to be looking at Elm and be kicking the tires on Elm, that kind of thing. So it seems to be picking up steam. Yes, I think a lot of us here are getting somewhat frustrated with some of the downsides of JavaScript, mm. and Elm promises to fix a lot of those pain points. Right. It's a lot of, um, you know, Matt Sunner came down and talked about uh, Haskell, and on an episode that Sean and I did a couple weeks ago, we talked about software quality problems, and all of these things are, type, are touching on, like, maybe we need to be letting the computer... <laughs> do more for us, right? With these strong static typing systems might help out a lot there. And it sounds like you're experiencing that positively with Elm. So far, it's been nothing but positive. Fantastic. Cool. So people can check that out at elm-lang.org, right? That's correct. Uh, anything else about Elm we should know about? So one thing that is really interesting about the structure of Elm programs is because of this reactive approach, you get a very obvious place to look for to see where all the different possible inputs and how they will affect the application. Uh, typically, you'll have an update function that will have what's essentially a large case statement and say, if this event triggers this function, if this event triggers that function, if that event triggers that function. And you know that these are the only four possible events that we are listening to, and these are exactly the things that are going to happen. So it makes it very easy to track down the flow of logic through the application. This sounds like I need to get on this. <laughs> I'm really interested in it now. You've sold me. 
your excitement has been contagious. We should so, pair someday. All right. Yeah, we'll try it out. Thanks for joining us, Joel. And a I'll let you get back to working with Elm. Sounds right. good. Thanks. That's it for the open mic episode of The Bike Shed today. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. I want to thank Matt, Cole, and Joel for chatting with us today. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 50. We love your feedback. We want to hear what you're excited about. Tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave your comment on the website. If you enjoyed the show, please, please tell your friends. Share it on social media, leave us reviews on iTunes, or just send us a postcard. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll catch you next week.